Well, you know, whenever somebody has a deeply spiritual, transformative experience or period of their life, we call it a mountaintop experience. Amen? And I have been deeply blessed to have several of those times when God seemed very near to me and was very real to me, and my life was never quite the same afterward. In fact, the very first one of those that I ever had uh, was literally on a mountain. Uh, it was atop a very steep hill down in, uh, down in central Arkansas, where Arkansas Youth Camp was located. And in the chapel on top of that hill, my faith in Jesus Christ moved out of the realm of being something I had learned about from my parents, something I had professed at a young age, to being something which was really and truly mine. And I began to grow in Christ, and I began to uh, understand how to read the Bible and how to pray and how to walk with God on my own, something I had never known how to do before. I learned that one week at that camp down in Arkansas. And I, I, you know, if you looked at geography, I doubt that that hill would rate as one of the world's mountain peaks. But it's Everest in my heart, amen? Because I was forever changed in that place and on top of that hill. And on another mountain, on the other side of the world, Jesus called those who followed him to listen to his teaching and discover the secret to living on the mountaintop. And so he's uh, he, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Matthew gives us a condensed version of Jesus' teaching on that. Uh, in the best and the most famous sermon that has ever been given, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend the next few months actually looking at this sermon by Jesus. doesn't take that long to read it or understand it, but this sermon is like a really good steak. You know, like you... You went and got the prime beef and let it age for a little while. And then you grill it to perfection and chew it, right? And you savor it a little bit. We're going to savor the Sermon on the Mount over the course of the next few months uh, because these chapters tell us very clearly and concisely how to live the new life that Jesus calls us to as believers and it also models for us what a redeemed life of following Jesus looks like. It gives us some very practical instruction and examples of how that fits into a, a believing life. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open up to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to just look at five verses today, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are some things you might not know just by looking at those three verses. So I want to back into this a little bit by giving us a little bit of context uh, to help us understand why Jesus is doing exactly what he's doing. Uh, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, that's what you see. Matthew is writing to primarily Jewish people who are reading his Gospel. And so Matthew is very concerned that people understand 
who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he fulfills all of Old Testament expectation in his person and life and death and resurrection. And so in Matthew chapter 1, you get Jesus as the greater son of David. And in Matthew chapter 2, you get Jesus, the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, 2, uh, which promises the ideal shepherd of the people of Israel and of God with us. And um, in chapter 3, you get the one uh, you get the one that is pointed to by the forerunner who was to come, that's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, and the one who is approved by God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in chapter 4, you see Jesus as the ideal Israelite who perfectly obeys God during 40 days of testing in the desert, parallel to the 40 years in the desert that the Israelites spent there. And that brings us up to chapter 5, and Jesus' ministry is growing by leaps and bounds. And hordes of people are coming from everywhere to listen to Him. And Jesus goes up on a mountain. And he begins to teach. And he begins to speak the word of God to people. What's Matthew doing? Who is Jesus the greater fulfillment of? Mountaintop. Speaking God's word to God's people. Moses. If you said Moses, give yourself a gold star for the day. All right? (laughs) Um, Because... Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of Moses. Moses predicted, one day there will be a prophet like me who will rise from among you and you're to listen to everything he says and do what he tells you. And Matthew is trying to show people this is who Jesus is. He is the prophet like Moses that Moses predicted and Jesus is beginning to act like a new and greater Moses. And in fact, Several places in the Sermon on the Mount, what you'll see is, you have heard that it was said to the men of old in the law. But I say to you, and Jesus will give a higher standard than the law gives for how you're to obey God and how you're to be in relationship with God. And Jesus is the new and greater Moses in these chapters. Because Moses merely spoke as God's mouthpiece. But Jesus spoke on His own authority because He was God in the flesh. Amen? So, I want to look at this first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the first of what's usually called the Beatitudes. Uh, We get that word out of Latin. Uh, the, The Latin word for blessed is the word beatus. And so... These things are the Beatitudes, the statements of those who are blessed by God. And the word blessed, I want to be clear here, the word blessed does not mean happy. A lot of Bible translations, I think, mistranslate that when they render it sometimes happy. Uh, The idea of being blessed is the idea of having God's approval, having God's favor. On your life. So, in other words, if how many of you would like to live a life such that you are at the end of it approved by God? Okay. So, if you want to live a life that God blesses, that He approves of, and that He He has um, 
you know, Max, Max Lucado has this wonderful book with a great title. Uh, it's called The Applause of Heaven. Right? And in other words, Jesus is telling us how to live a life at the end of which you will receive the applause of heaven. That God will approve of you and the life that you have lived. How does that happen? Well, it begins with this. It begins with being poor in spirit. And this is a time when I think the... um, a little bit of knowledge of, of the original Greek in which Matthew wrote his gospel is a little helpful. The Greek word poor is literally the word takos. And if you were a takos, you were a beggar. Everybody knows what a beggar is? We don't use that word in, uh, in you know, we, we say someone is homeless or someone is in need or someone, you know, is uh, disadvantaged or whatever, okay? But the word is beggar. Okay? Somebody hanging out by the side of the road who has nothing. Who is totally dependent, in other words, on the kindness of other people to survive and to live. And that if no one comes in from the outside with aid, this person will die. That's poor in the word that Jesus uses here. A beggar. Or in spirit then, means the person who comes to God recognizing that they don't have anything to offer. Okay, That they are, in other words, totally dependent on God to give them what they need. And to understand that they don't have anything that earns them any credit before the Lord. Okay? Uh, by the way, if you haven't participated in evangelism explosion yet, your turn is coming. You need to do this. Because this is some marvelous training in how to share the gospel. And it begins with this, right? What's this? Grace. Okay? And the spiritual life begins the same way. The spiritual life begins when you have a deep recognition of your need for grace. Okay, when you understand that I've got nothing that would that would merit or earn me favor with God, that it needs to come to me by grace. And the poor in spirit person is the one who says, you know what? I may give money to United Way, and I may, um, you know, walk little old ladies across the street, and uh, you know, help at the homeless shelter, and. Um, you know, be very generous with my money and time, and I try not to be too ornery with my spouse, and you know, be a good parent to my kids, and and you know, not be too difficult with my neighbors and so forth. I'm a pretty good person, but you know what? I'm desperately in need of God's grace, because also within my heart is. A sin nature which bends me in rebellion against God. And if he does not intervene from the outside, then this beggar will die. Amen? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to come to God like a beggar, recognizing that all that you might have in this world that might accredit you, 
counts for zero in terms of approval before God. And to say, I need grace to receive salvation. And then Jesus makes us this marvelous promise. He said, if you come to God that way, come to God that way, then you receive the kingdom of heaven. In other words, heaven is yours. Or to, to use a parable that Jesus told, he said that there were two men who went to worship at the temple, and one uh, spoke about himself before God. Remember this story? And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Right? He went on and on his little bragamony before God, right? How great he was. And he said, the other man was a tax collector. And he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man, rather than the other, went down to his house justified before God. Why? Because that man was poor in spirit. And he understands that heaven comes not to those who work really hard to earn it, but those who recognize that nothing they can do will earn it or deserve it for them. Amen? All right, let's move on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this this is the verse that gives us the next step. After you have become poor in spirit, after you are able to say to God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Then the next thing in, in living a mountaintop life would be mourning. Now please don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying that mourning is in and of itself a blessed state. Because mourning a lot of times comes as a result of tragedy. Uh, You can even have ungodly mourning. You can have people who are sad over some evil they haven't been able to do yet. Right? Uh, Like Amnon, the son of King David, mourned over the fact that his his half-sister Tamar did not want to be his girlfriend. Okay? Uh, He was an evil man. And he mourned over the fact that that she didn't want anything to do with his sin. Get away from me. Okay? Or you got Ahab, who is crying in his palace over the fact that Naboth would not sell him his vineyard. And then his wife Jezebel went out and had Naboth killed so that she could cheer up her husband. Right? Uh, There is... Godly and there is ungodly mourning, but the kind of mourning that Jesus has in mind is a specific sort. The kind that is always blessed by God and that always results in God's comfort coming to that person. And it's mourning over sin and its effects. Because when you're poor in spirit, all of a sudden you realize how destructive living your life apart from God really is. And you understand what Jesus meant when He said the thief comes to steal and kill 
and destroy. Because the reality is, is that godliness looks unappealing from a distance, but it is beautiful up close. Where sin is the other way, isn't it? That from a distance it looks very appealing, but once you get into it, it takes over and destroys your life. And a poor in spirit person is someone who all of a sudden looks at their life and realizes, look at all of the destruction I have brought on myself. What a fool I have been in my rebellion against God. God, forgive me. And they are mourning over their sin, not over the fact that they got caught and that things didn't turn out like they maybe hoped, but over the fact that their sin separates them from God and they cannot bear to be separated from Him. If you're a child of God and you sin, you mourn because you realize you've set fire to your own life. And those of us who know Christ, some of us still pay some of the freight on some of the things that we did before we knew the Lord or at times that we weren't walking with Him and we mourn that. We mourn those times when we walked away from the Lord or when we were living in rebellion against God. Sin had its terrible effects and consequences. And we cry out to God for forgiveness. And that's when we receive comfort. That's when the comfort of God comes. Because then we know when we cry out to God in confession, we are comforted with forgiveness, with healing, with knowing that despite everything we have done, and I bet if we were to have a contest for who has done the worst of sins in this room. We could get ourselves up a pretty good list of nasty nasties. Right? And we're not going to do that. And the reason we're not is this, is that number one, that is past. And number two, it is paid. And number three, it is forgiven. Because we... And we have received comfort from God as we have confessed our sin. That despite all of that, God still loves us. God still loves us. He still receives us and welcomes us into His family. And that is tremendously comforting. When you have really cratered life, and I have done it a few times, in spectacular fashion, you know, I have cratered it huge. And then all of a sudden you turn to the Lord, you kind of wake up, you know, like the prodigal son. He's about to get down into this face, down into the trough. And it says, when he came to his senses, <laughs> okay, <laughs> like I think right before the lips hit the pig slop, he went, this is dumb, <laughs> right? Um <laughs> And I've had those kind of moments, and I bet some of you have too, where you go, this is dumb. I don't have to do this anymore. 
I can go back to my heavenly Father and be forgiven. I don't have to live in slavery to this sin that I've been indulging in all of the, all of this time. I can turn around. I can go a different way. I can go home. And then you go home. Cry out to God. You say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And at that moment, the Father runs to you, throws his arms around you, and offers you forgiveness. Those who mourn receive comfort from God. Last one we're going to look at today. We'll pick up three more next week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that a paradox is truth standing on its head calling for attention. Now this statement is one of those. It is truth standing on its head calling for attention. Because if you look around at our world, if you look at the top political offices across the Fruited Plain, if you look at the people who are occupying the executive suites at companies all over the world, you will not find these places overrun with the meek. Amen? That is not who you will find there. Those places are filled with the ambitious, the self-important, the capable, the strong, the self-sufficient, the aggressive, the overbearing, the meek. Those are the ones they stepped on on the way to get to those places. Right? i got to climb this greasy pole and I don't care who is underneath me when I fall. Because you helped me climb this thing up to the top. And the standard operating procedure of the world is that. That you have to look out for numero uno because no one else is going to. Right? But Jesus turns that thinking upside down. He says the meek will inherit the earth. Who are they? Well, the meek is one of those words... That again helps a little little knowledge of Greek helps. And the word literally refers to um, power under control. And the idea is used with reference to uh, taming animals a lot of times. Now, I'm not a cowboy. Okay, I had dreams of being a cowboy when I was a kid. You know, I had the six guns, the red hat, you know, all of that, chaps little spring horse that I rode until he fell apart, right? It was great. Watch the Lone Ranger standing up on horseback. Fantastic. Um, but I'm not a cowboy, but I, I, I did take horseback riding lessons at one point. Um, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of dangerous, uh, but the store manager got it unplugged just in time. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, uh, no, seriously, I, I did take I did take horseback riding lessons at one point, and, um, and my dad had a couple of horses when I was uh, in college. And I don't know much about horses, but this I do know for sure. That animal is 1,200 pounds. So uh, versus an average man, that thing outweighs you by about six fold. And on top of that, 
horses are spooky and scared of everything. And they can really hurt you. Okay? I mean, you'd sooner have a swimming pool that's uncovered than a horse. They're dangerous. Okay? They have, and the reason they're dangerous is that they are big and they are strong and they are powerful. And if you have one that is not broke to saddle and bridle, you have a wild animal. But you can take this enormous animal, this thing that outweighs you by at least six times, and you can put, you can get them trained where you can put, they will lower their head down for you to put the bridle in their mouth. And they will allow you to put a saddle on them. And then you can take this enormous animal and do some really fun stuff. You can ride through the woods in Brown County, Indiana, over to the Story Inn and tie your horse up like Pecos Bill or something out of the Wild West, right? And go into the Story Inn and have breakfast and ride your pony back through the woods to the camp where you're staying. It's great, okay? Fantastic. If you ever get to do that, it's, it's, it's marvelous. There's lots of places you can do that kind of thing. And that horse will, with that bridle, go wherever you want him to go. Why? Because he's meek. He's trained to put his enormous power under the control of another. And Jesus says that the meek are those who have put control of their life under someone else's authority and power. Who is that person? Jesus Christ. And if you want to inherit the earth, then that's what you have to do. You have to be first poor in spirit and then mourn over your sin and the separation it brings between you and God. And then you have to yield control over your life to God and transfer your um, the throne of your life, if you will, from King me to King Jesus. And you have to allow him to direct you wherever he wants you to go. And that's what it means to be a meek person. is someone who has submitted their authority and their power and their control and their right to do what they want to do with their life over to Jesus and said, I will follow. You tell me where to go. Amen? The meek inherit the earth. The meek are those who have submitted themselves to the authority of Jesus over their life and therefore receive as a reward the entire earth. You know, the day is coming when we will reign with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, that there is a millennial kingdom coming before that where we will literally reign on this earth over the kingdom of Jesus Christ as His vice regents and Viziers and whatever else, I mean, whatever are the titles you want to come up with, okay, you will have authority over a portion of the earth, literally, as a follower of Jesus Christ. But that only comes if you're a meek person who surrenders control of your life to Him. Amen? All right. Well, uh, there's a progression here. It begins with recognizing you need grace. 
And when you recognize that you need grace, you receive spiritual life. You enter the kingdom of heaven. And you, um, you have to realize that there's nothing you can do that would merit God's approval or win his favor. And when you do that, you receive his favor as a gift and you enter the kingdom of heaven. And then you turn away from your past and the way that you have been living and toward Jesus. And you, you look back at your life and you say, you know, that's a mess. And I'm going a different way. And I mourn for what I have done. Thank God for His forgiveness. And it comes to us as comfort. And then, you yield control of your life over to Jesus. You become, in a sense, tamed. Broke to the saddle and bridle that Jesus puts on you. Or Jesus Himself said it, Come unto Me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. You get broke to His use and His purposes and His plans and His control instead of your own. So, are you blessed this morning? Do you have God's approval? Have you received His favor over your life? Do you know that you have God's approval? You know that. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, if not, if anybody's curious as to as to whether or not they have received God's favor or not, Jesus tells us this is how you do it. You have to lay aside whatever you've been relying on instead of Him, and you trust in Him completely to give you eternal life as a free gift. Something you can't earn and you cannot deserve, but that is granted to you as a free gift when you say, I got nothing. But if you will receive me, I will put my trust in you. God has already given us, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, a tremendous amount to celebrate. We have the kingdom. We have the whole earth. We have the comfort of the living God. We have membership in God's family, and there's more to come. But if you do know Christ, understand this too. These characteristics are not a one-time thing. This isn't something that you just did once upon a time or that you... um, walked an aisle once upon a time at a revival or whatever, okay? These are things that are ongoing characteristics of walking with Christ day by day now also. Uh, there are three of the keys to living a mountaintop life. So let me just conclude here, ask a few questions, and I'll, I'll be done, and we'll pray. First one, is there anything right now that you want more then you want God's approval. Anything that you want more than you want God's approval. If there is, please understand this. You need to repent and realize that whatever that is is not going to ultimately satisfy or bring you joy. If you want God's approval more than anything else, joy can be yours. 
But if you want anything instead of God's approval, joy will never come in a lasting way. Number two, are you relying on anything other than God's grace for your standing before God? Uh, sometimes we forget that God does not love us more when we are good and, and less when we are sinful. That's not true. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think, well, I've been really good this week, so God must love me a lot right now. Or I haven't been very good, so I'm sure God loves me less. But here's the reality that the Bible presents to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He already loves us supremely. And we can forget that, and we can think that we have to perform for God. And we have to somehow earn His love for us, but we don't. We serve and we love God because He loved us first. And we rely on His grace for our standing before Him. Third question. When you sin, do you still mourn? Sin is... Sin is something that still separates us from God. It still divides us. Even when we're saved uh, from the ultimate penalty of sin, sin still has consequences. And one of the biggest ones is that we are all of a sudden cut off from God and fellowship with Him. you mourn that? Does that cause pain in your heart? I've sinned. Now I'm out of relationship with God. If not, because your heart is hardened. And a hardened heart could be evidence that you were never really poor in spirit to begin with. That you never really knew the Lord, but only possessed head knowledge that needs to be transformed into heartfelt and saving faith. But if you know that you are, in fact, a believer and your heart is still hard, turn to God. Cry out to Him. Confess anyway. Ask Him to give you a softened heart that is sensitive to sin and it is eager to obey Him. He will. His comfort comes. Last question. Are there any areas of your life over which you need to yield control to Jesus? You know, I don't know about you, but when I came to faith in Jesus, I said, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Right? I didn't sing that song necessarily, but that's as a poetic expression as I know. This is my life. I, I give it all to you. It's yours. You can do with me what you want. And, and now, there, and then there are periods of my life where I want to renegotiate. Right? I want to say, well, Lord, you know, this is an area of my life I'd really like to have back. Because I think I could do a better job here managing than you. Right? And sometimes he'll let us have it back. Okay, you want to fart? Go, go for it, son. Party on. Okay, let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> All right? 
And here's the reality. My life and yours too is a continual process of saying, I will yield all of my life to you. My life is yours. Do with me according to your will. And not my will, but yours be done. And I will, I'm here to carry it out. So are there any areas where you need to maybe re-yield control of your life to Jesus? If there are, give them up to Him today. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for these profound truths that point us the way toward life with You that is abundant and full of joy and gives us life eternally. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has never known what it means to be poor in spirit, that today would be the day when they say, I don't have anything to offer you, God, but if you'll receive me, I would love to be in your family. I place my trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. Pay my penalty for sin and to purchase my place in heaven as part of God's family. Father, I pray that as they're making that decision that you would lead them and convert them and bring them to yourself. And Father, for the rest of us who have long ago perhaps put our trust in You. Father, I pray that we would continue to walk in the way that Jesus reveals to us here on the mountain as people who are poor in spirit, who mourn our sin, and who long to give You control of every area of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.